rejoice in it, repent before it, so that we um, are th- likewise thankful as Paul is for the work of the gospel in his church. That we are rejoicing as we see God's people partnering together in the gospel because of the work God has done in them. That we are confident that the work God has done in us and in his people will be brought to completion the day of Christ Jesus. That we have the deep affection for one another, for the church, because of the work that God is doing in spreading the gospel in us, that we have that affection, the affection that Christ has for his people that Paul reflects on here. And Lord, that we would be praying constantly, recognizing that even when things are good, the battle hasn't ended. That we need to continue to grow in sanctification and holiness. That we need to continue to grow in knowledge um, and love and in discernment. Or that we need to continue to grow in maturity so that when the battle does rage again, we would be prepared to be faithful to your gospel, to your son, to you for your sake. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Well, um, there's nothing better for a parent with children than to see your children walking in the ways that you hoped they would, right? And nothing better than to see your children forsake walking in the ways that you hope they wouldn't. Is that not true? When you see your children doing the things, rejoicing in the things that you want them to rejoice in and forsaking the things that you want them to forsake, it gives you great joy, does it not? Nothing gives you greater joy. Well, as a pastor, as a pastor, there is no greater joy for me No greater joy for me than to see God at work in you all through the gospel of Jesus Christ. No greater joy for me than to see God at work in you all through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Look, I'm not just throwing out some platitude here. Some, you know, nice little saying the pastors are supposed to say. From the time God used me, God used really a group of 14 and 15 year olds to call me into ministry. A group of 14 and 15 year olds who captured my heart, who I loved deeply to bring me into ministry. The time that he did that and and I saw them, um, I saw them grow as God was at work in them and I saw them um, share the gospel then with other people. From the time that I saw that happening to the time in which I planted this church, and saw God working in you all through the gospel. Through all that to this day, in which I see you continue to partner with me as I suffer. Not only as I preach the gospel, not only as I minister, but to see you continue to partner with me as I suffer. There is no greater joy that I have than to see God at work in you to bring that kind of partnership about. No greater joy that I have than to see God at work in you through His gospel to bring about that kind of partnership that we have. 
so that he's at work in you and in your families and me and my families so that together we are moving on mission toward proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ to a lost and dying world. There's no greater joy for me than that. And that really is, um, that really is the motivation, the heart behind this letter that Paul writes to the church at Philippi. As we look at Paul's letter to the Philippians, really, um, I want to read the whole thing to you, and I'm going to, so I'm going to try to preach short so you can hear this letter that Paul wrote to the church of Philippi as we start. And as we read it, I want you to understand, or before we read it, I want you to understand the way Paul feels about this church, the way he thinks about this church that he planted. And I want you to see, just in this Thanksgiving and prayer section, I'm going to walk through, just to introduce this letter, I want you to see the themes that really go through the whole letter. Because I'm going to just walk through this three sections and three points, this prayer and thanksgiving section. As I do, I want you to see the themes, what is driving Paul, why he loves this church he planted, why he rejoices over them, why he is thankful for them, and how all of that is answered by the fact that God is at work in them through Christ to partner with him in the gospel in his ministry, in his suffering. Why Paul could address them with such an affectionate phrase, probably the most affectionate phrase of any of what he's written in any of the letters of the New Testament. When Paul says to them in Philippians 4.1, just piling affection upon affection, he says this, Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown... My beloved. So this is a letter. Philippians is a letter about Paul's joy in Christ. Paul's joy in Christ because of Christ's work in Philippi. And I want to look at this together. So first, let's look at the thanksgiving. The first part of this prayer that Paul gives is thanksgiving. It's Paul's thanksgiving really grounded in their gospel partnership. In other words, he's going to thank God for the gospel partnership he has with them, and he's going to tell them that that gospel partnership he has with them results from the work of God in Christ. Results from the work of God in Christ. And he's thanking God for this, and he starts off with this, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. Interesting, he doesn't say, I thank you for the money you've sent, because they did. They sent lots of money to Paul. They helped him from the beginning. They helped him financially. They sent people to help him. They prayed for him. They suffered with him. They came alongside him in ministry. He doesn't say, Philippians, I want to send you a thank you card. Thank you. Thank you for all your great service to me. No, what he says is, I thank my God. I thank my God in all my remembrance. Why? Because God is the one who did this work in them. God is the one who is, oh, that we would thank God for the work in each other rather than each other. I don't need you to thank me. Thank you, Chad, for doing this. I don't need you to thank me. I need you to thank God for the work he's doing in me. Recognize the source of any good thing I do. Nothing will give me more joy than that. Our children's people that serve with our children and teach them the gospel, people that serve on setup and teardown, people that um, 
lead small group ministries. People that come in here and sing for us and play instruments for us. My staff, I thank my God for them. I am glad that they've done what they've done. But the source of what they've done, the motivation, what's driven them to do every good thing is God at work in them. And so I thank supremely, I thank my God. That's what Paul's saying here. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy. It's a theme of this letter. Said some 16 times in this letter that he has joy. What's he rejoicing in? Look at what he says next. Because what? Because of your partnership in the gospel. In other words, what Paul is thanking God for, what Paul is rejoicing in God for when he prays, is their partnership in the gospel. That's what I thank my God for. That's what I rejoice in. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. Remembering you in my prayers, always in every prayer of mine, making my prayer with joy. Why? Because of your partnership in the gospel. What does that phrase mean? And it's, by the way, a partnership that happened from the first day, from the day he planted this church till now. It's been an ongoing partnership for the entire time that Paul has known them. What's that partnership? That word is the word we use for fellowship. We use that word. We talk about it. You know, we get together and have tea and cookies. And we say, we fellowship together. Right? Look, he means something much more than just getting together for coffee or lunch. Although those things are nice. He is talking about the idea that he, we, as believers, are united to Christ through faith. And as a result of being united to Christ through faith, we are united to one another. And we are on a mission together to see Jesus proclaimed in all the world. That's fellowship. Fellowship is when we come together as believers in Christ, united together as brothers and sisters, having a common mission, a common Lord, a common faith. And that's what we share with one another. That's where you get deep fellowship. Paul says, we've had this partnership, and specifically here, their fellowship has shown up in tangible ways. You know how it's shown up? It's shown up in the fellowship of their giving, as he says in chapter 4. That you've given to me. You partnered with me. And you know what he says? It's that word again, fellowship. He's saying, you fellowshiped in what? You gave financially to me when I was in need. Showed up in tangible ways. Your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And he goes on, he says this in verse 6. And I am sure of this. I'm confident of this. I am certain of this. What? That he, he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion the day of Jesus Christ. Hear what he said? I'm confident of this. That he who began a good work in you. Who began the good work in them? God did. Who does he thank? I thank my God. Why? Because he began a good work in you. He's the one who did it. That he who began a good work in you, God did this work. Paul's first person he ministered to in Philippi is a lady named Lydia. She was a rich woman, wealthy woman. She was a Gentile. She uh, was a God-fearing Gentile, though, and was trying to convert into Judaism at the time. And Paul comes along and starts preaching. And when he's sharing the word with her, the Scripture tells us in Acts 16 that the Lord opened her heart. The Lord opened her heart so that she would understand the word that he was preaching. Who began the work in Philippi? God did. 
and God will bring it to completion. That's what he's saying. At the day of Christ Jesus. You know what that is? That's the last day. That great and glorious day in which Jesus Christ returns in the heavens and we rejoice in him as we see him coming. It's that day which my son asked me about almost every day on the way to school. Daddy, when is Jesus returning? And he has his little ideas about what's going to happen. Is it going to look like this the way the sun's shining down now? Is that how it's going to look? And kind of sun, it's going to be glorious. How will we hear him if we're in our cars and you're in different parts of the world and you have the music up so loud, Dad? How are we going to hear him when he comes? So he tells me, <laughs> and I tell him, son, he will be loud enough that we will hear him. And he said, will it hurt our ears if it's that loud? I said, no, son, it'll be the greatest sound you ever hear unless you're an unbeliever. And then it will be the most horrifying sound you ever hear. And he looks forward to that day. He tells me when, um, and I haven't taught him this. He's watched the news on his own, so you know, you won't believe me. When fire rains down from heaven upon God's enemies, and I've taught him that part, and, um, and he tells me that he's praying that Obama will repent soon before the fire comes down <laughs> upon him. But he says, I'm not kidding. He's nine years old. I think he might be a preacher. I'm worried about him. Anyway, but the Lord began this work. The Lord began this work in Philippi. God began a good work in Philippi in saving those in the church and in working to partner with them, with Paul in the gospel, right? God began that work. And this caused thankfulness and joy and confidence for Paul. Why? Because Paul knew that God never begins something that he fails to bring to completion. Never. If he starts something, he finishes it. God doesn't fail to finish what he starts. God did a great work when Paul and Timothy planted this church. You know, Paul and Timothy planted it together. Paul had no intent. I want you to hear this. Paul had no intent in going to Philippi, none. No desire to go to Philippi. He was thinking, I'm going to go to Asia and preach the gospel, or I'm going to go to my Asia and preach the gospel, but the Spirit continued to stop him from going there. He talks about this all in Acts 16. And at the time, he was walking around with Timothy. Timothy was um, a recent convert, a young guy who was following Paul. And Paul and Timothy were trying to go to these places. They couldn't go. Finally, um, while Paul was having a dream, he, one night I was asleep, he was having a dream, and a man from Macedonia was calling him, come to Macedonia. And he thought, well, God is stopping me from going everywhere else. Why don't we try Macedonia? And the capital city of Macedonia is Philippi. So they went to Philippi um, with zero plans. It wasn't Paul, the great church planner, who thought, man, I'm going to plant a church in Philippi because that will be a good place to plant a church. God called him there. And his ministry there consisted of ministry to, to really three people. You read about in Acts 16. The first people he really ministered to, the first person was Lydia, who I told you about, the, the wealthy Gentile woman who was um, trying to convert to Judaism, who was a God-fearer. First person he ministered to. The second person he ministered to was a demon-possessed slave girl who followed him around town taunting him. Okay? The third person he ministered to was a guy who was a guard who was watching him in jail, the Philippian jailer, who when Paul and Silas were praying, etc., or Timothy were praying, all, the prison broke open and, you know, the whole thing happened and, and the, the prison guard was scared and they're getting free now and, and, and he's thinking, what am I going to do? And uh, the prison guard decides to pull out a sword and try to kill himself. 
right? He's about to off himself, and then Paul explains the gospel to him and becomes saved. So anyways, the point is, Paul's core group in Philippi was a rich, God-fearing Gentile woman, a demon-possessed slave girl who Paul delivered from demonic possession, and what? And a man who was about to kill himself, right? That's his core group. That isn't exactly the church-planting core group that church planters get excited about, so you know. It isn't the one that everybody looks at and goes, man, that church is going to make it, right? And yet God works in them through the gospel. And he works in Philippi through the gospel in a way that he, in a way that he didn't work in any of the other churches. None of the other churches are as faithful as Philippi. Probably the most ragtag group, core group that Paul ever put together, really that God ever put together, And it was incredibly faithful. This was the church that partnered with Paul in the gospel from the very beginning of the church plant. This was the church that begged for the privilege to joyfully give out of their extreme poverty to help another church in need. You know that? 2 Corinthians chapter 8. The churches in Macedonia, Philippi, begged. They were extremely poor. Please let us have the privilege to joyfully give to another church in need. This was the church that supported Paul financially when no one else would. This was the church that supported him whether he was in ministry or whether he was in prison. This was the church who prayed for him, who sent Epaphroditus to help him in his suffering, who chose to suffer with him. And Paul knew that this church was a result of God's work. Result of God's work in Christ. He didn't even plan to go there. Nor could he look at his original core group and say, of all the churches I plant, I'm sure this church will be exceedingly faithful. But it was. And like Paul, I'm what's called a church planter. I planted sovereign grace. And like Paul, I had partners in the plant the earliest of whom were Bo Woodward and our assistant pastor, Jason Faber. We were like Paul and Timothy going to plant a church, only dumber than they were um, in many regards. And God did a great work here. God did a great work here. We started just a few of us. No money, no clue how to plant a church, no detailed plan, nothing. We only had one thing, I remember, too, from the beginning, we only had one thing we really planned to do well, and that was to put the gospel of God's grace at the center of all of our singing, all of our prayer, all of our preaching, all of our care for one another, and all of our fellowship. It would be exceedingly easy then now for us to attribute the great work that God has done to some kind of great core group we put together, or some kind of great skills we put together, or some kind of great decisions we made. But the fact is that we made many stupid decisions. Many. And we'll probably continue to. (laughs) And the fact is that I don't have great church planning skills. And that we had a core group, frankly, that were mostly young. Some were older, but mostly young. Many new Christians. Many deeply hurting people. Some people who didn't know Christ. Almost all of whom who had never planted a church. Nor did we have a clue what we were doing. And yet, 
God did this great work. He took a few of us, young guys, and he built us into a body of 200 plus people. He took us from being clueless to somewhat having our act together. He took us from having no money as a church to doing extremely financially well to giving extraordinary amounts of money to missions for a small church and to owning 18.2 acres of land which we didn't have to buy, incidentally. And what's far more precious than that, exceedingly more important than that, is that God worked through us to save some unbelievers. It's that God worked in us to cause us to love his truth and holiness. It's that God worked among us to give us an amazing fellowship or partnership. A fellowship or partnership in a church where we are united to Christ through faith and to one another and on mission together to see Christ proclaimed among all peoples. God did that. But I want to go one step further. God did this work, all this work I've talked about, as a result of a superlative or the greatest work, the most important work he did here and that he is doing here and that I pray he will continue to do in sovereign grace. And that's this work. He sovereignly and graciously gave us and is giving us an abounding love for the free gospel of his grace in Jesus Christ. And he sovereignly and graciously gave us the wisdom and the courage to found this church and build this church on and with that gospel. And I pray he'll continue to do the same. And this was true in Philippi as well, which is why Paul could say, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, making my prayer with, for all you, making my prayer with joy. Why? Because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. You hear that? Second, Paul's confidence and joy and thankfulness is, is what we see go through this letter, but we also see Paul's affection for Philippi go through this letter. He actually breaks away from his prayer and thanksgiving just to reflect on how much he loves them. It's kind of an aside here. He's, he, he breaks away to talk about his affection, and his affection is also grounded in their gospel partnership, which is a result of the work of God in Christ. Look what he says in verse 7. It is right for me to feel this way about you all. It's an interesting phrase. It's actually to set my mind to think this way. We try to bring it out as feel this way now. It's the idea. It's more than just thinking, i.e. intellectually assenting to the truth of it. It's this idea that he, he thinks it so true that he feels it. He, he experiences this truth that he thinks. He set his mind on it. It's right for me to feel this way about you all. Why? Because I hold you in my heart. And why do I hold you in my heart? For you all are all partakers with me of grace. What does it mean that you're partakers of me with, uh, of, with me of grace? That you partner with me, that you fellowship with me in grace. Same word here. And he goes on to describe that. Both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. Hear that? I have this 
feeling in my heart for you. It's right for me to feel this way about you. What, what way? It's right for me to have thankfulness and joy and confidence about you. Because I have you in my heart. Why do I have you in my heart? Because of your partnership with me in the gospel. Because you partook with me in the grace, in the grace of God. You're believers. God has worked in you by his grace. And I see that being worked out in your ongoing fellowship and partnership. How? Because you have helped me when I'm in prison. And you have helped me when I am trying to proclaim and defend the gospel. Regardless of whether I am in suffering or I am in full mode preaching, you're standing by me by the work of God. And I Feel this affection for you because of what God is doing. He says, he goes on and says this, for God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. But you understand this, Paul's affection for them was not just because they were doing something for him as if it was some sort of self-centered, selfish affection. No, Paul's affection for them was the affection of Christ Jesus. He loves them for this partnership because he has Christ's love for his church in his heart. And Jesus loves his church. And Jesus is greatly exalted by and greatly rejoices in a faithful church. And therefore, Paul does as well, which is why at the end of Philippians 4, when Paul is thanking them for their financial gifts and the way they've supported him financially, he tells them, look, not that I seek the gift. It's not that I want the money. But I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. Hear what he's saying? I love to see you partnering with me, fellowshipping with me in this work that we are doing. I love to see you giving financially, to see you sharing, to see you helping, to see you praying for me, to see you sending people to help me while I'm suffering, to see you helping me while I'm trying to proclaim the gospel and further and plant churches in new places. I love to see you doing that. Why? Because it benefits me? No, I'm glad it benefits me, but I love to see you do it because it benefits you in that God is at working in you and he's growing you in sanctification and I see that happening and it increases to your credit and I give thanks to God for that because there's nothing more that I love to see than to see the faithfulness of God's people as a result of the work of God in his church. And I love to see it because I have the affection of Christ in me. He loves them so because Jesus lives in Paul through his spirit. What does Paul say in Galatians 2.20? I have been crucified with Christ and yet I live. But not I, but Christ who lives within me, right? The life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who gave himself for me, loves me and gave himself for me. And Christ's love compels Paul, compels Paul in what he desires. And what does Paul desire? He desires nothing more than seeing God at work in people so that Jesus is exalted in the salvation and sanctification of his church. And he sees God at work in them. And thus he rejoices and he's thankful and he's confident that the God who started this work will complete it. He sees the gospel bearing fruit in their faith and in their obedience and in their support of his ministry of the gospel and taking it to unreached peoples and in their support of him in his suffering. He sees God at work in them and he's thankful and he's rejoicing and he loves them. Third, Paul's prayer. Um, in Paul's prayer, we see his desire to see them grow. We see his affection run through this letter. We see his 
thankfulness and joy in Christ and what he's doing and his confidence for them run through this letter, we also see his desire to see them grow in faith and sanctification, to be ready for the ever-increasing battle they're going to be facing. He desires to see that throughout the letter, and he prays for that. And that prayer, that growth in gospel partnership is grounded in God's work in Christ as well, to the praise of God's glory. And that's what Paul keys in on. Look what he says in verse 9. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. Filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ, the praise and glory to the praise of, or excuse me, the glory and praise of God. Look, it's my prayer that your love would abound more and more. This is a church that already loves God and one another and Him, but He wants it to abound more and more. He prays for it to increase. And He doesn't just want their love just to be this kind of undirected sort of mess. He wants their love to grow more and more with all knowledge and discernment. In other words, the idea is he wants their love to grow more and more for God and others in a way that is defined by God's word and that carries out, that discerns the object of affection appropriately so that their love is placed in the right realm where God wants it, on the right person, on the right things, on the right motivations. He wants to see that happen in them. Why? So that they can approve what is excellent. So they desire to see God's work done. To see God exalted. So that they would be pure internally. And blameless. Talking about the connection between what's going on internally and their walk in front of people. They'd be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. Ready for that day. And this prayer goes on, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes where? Through Jesus Christ. Where does the fruit of righteousness come from? Jesus Christ. He's the source of it. He said again and again, comes through this letter just here. I thank my God for you. He who began a good work in you. Filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. The glory and praise of God. Why is Paul praying so fervently for the love and growth of such a great church? He's praying fervently for the love and growth of a great church because he knows God did the work and that God will complete the work. God is the one who will keep them growing. He knows that. And Paul knows they need to keep growing. Why? Because the war, the battle, spiritual war is going to grow more intense and they need to be ready. And he knows that. So in other words, Paul is thanking God for what he's done, and at the same time, he is praying for God to do exceedingly more in them. You know, I think when um, things are going well, we tend to pray less, don't we, rather than more, huh? Things are going well, we stop praying so much, they're going good, rather than praying more. We don't see the necessity of prayer as we should, and we don't because we don't recognize we're in a battle when things are going well. We, we, we forget about the spiritual war when things are going well. We think we're in our living room rather than the battlefield when things are going well. Reclining on our couch rather than a foxhole, right? Um, Spurgeon, um, Charles Spurgeon, who is the Baptist preacher of the, of the 19th century, many of you have heard of, is called the Prince of Preachers. Um, he is, was a, a fantastic preacher who actually became converted at the age of 15. His grandfather and father were both uh, preachers as well. 
Um, Spurgeon, however, wasn't converted until he was 15 years old, um, although he had read most of the great Puritan works by the age of 9 or 10, so he's exceedingly intelligent. Um, he was converted at, at 15 and, and then started pastoring at 16 years of age. In case you think, well, in the 19th century that had been normal. No, it wasn't. To be a man who had no formal education, who wasn't lettered, as they say, and who was 16 years old, that was unusual. And he was preaching a small country church, and his gift of preaching became known to many people, um, so much so that a church in London called New Park Street Baptist Church, a famous church that had been, had been pastored by several famous Puritans in history, um, called him and said, can you come preach at our church on, on a Sunday in December? And he said, sure, I'll come. He was 19 years old at the time. Um, he came and preached, and he was just a little uneducated country preacher who was young and people laughed at, actually, when he got to the city. They were laughing at him. Um, they, they thought he was um, kind of out of place and out of touch, and, and what are you going to bring? You're 19. I mean, imagine if we brought a 19-year-old up, right? Well, what, do you, what do you have to offer, dude? You're 19. You haven't gone to seminary. And uh, Spurgeon came and preached in such a way that the church had, had been hurting because they'd had a pastor out for a while, although this was a famous church. And while he was there, just before he um, got into the pulpit, actually the night before, some of the men said, do you realize what kind of preachers we have in London and what kind of preachers have been in that pulpit? These are educated men. These are men with great oratory, oratorical skill. And you're just a country guy. Look at you. You're 19. And Spurgeon um, said he slept all night, feeling, or didn't sleep all night, just kind of off and on, turning, feeling very unready for the task, unable for the task, and, and then uh, decided to get um, into the pulpit and realize, okay, before I preach, I'm just going to preach like I do at home. I'm going to preach like I do at my church at home. I'm not going to worry about any of this. And he, there was only, you know, they say maybe 200 people there that day, although it was a church that seated 1,200. They said that um, he got in the pulpit and he preached, and the people were so blown away um, by that night, because they always did a Sunday morning and Sunday night service, incidentally. We think we're overkill when we have a small group in addition. Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, you know. And Anyways, um, so he said... Uh, well, I'll be back to preach tonight for the Sunday night service. By that night, there were about 600 people there because of word of mouth. And they asked him to come back in January and preach three times the audition as their pastor. And he, he agreed to do it. Um, the first time he came back and preached in January, they hired him as their pastor. Within several months, the place was full. Um, not too long after that, they had to rent a theater. By the time he was 22 years old, this is 19, by the time he was 22 years old, they had to rent a place for a Sunday night service that sat 10,000, and it wasn't enough to keep all the people. They would just crowd around outside to hear him preach. Um, but here's a guy who, when he was 19, what was the power behind his ministry? You know what he said? When they asked him to come work at this church in, in London, he, 19-year-old kid, he says this, I will come on one condition, one condition, that your people pray for me that this church prays for me. And I don't mean just pray for me, occasionally throw up a prayer here and there. I want them to go on their knees and go to war for me in prayer and for this church. Because he knew he needed God to work. Look, just because we don't hear the bullets or see the bullets flying and hear them whizzing by doesn't mean the enemy has stopped his advance and is no longer planning an attack. I need you to pray with me and for me for right now and for the long term of this church. I need you to. 
And Paul knew he needed to pray for the Philippians, and they needed to pray for him because he wanted them to stand fast in their faith. That's why I prayed for them. So understanding that, I want to read you this letter from this man who planted this church that was faithful to God, encouraging them as he himself is in prison, saying, be joyful, continue in the faith with me. I'm praying for you to grow. I'm thanking God for you. Keep partnering with me. Watch out for heretics that are to come and try to mess things up. Be humble with one another. Any conflicts are going, you need to put, we need to continue to grow in grace and faith in Christ. I love you. I want you to hear this. And so he writes in this letter. So here's, here it is. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. To all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. Here he is, chained, chained, as he's putting this word out. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion of the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent And so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach, indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of rivalry, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense Or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I'm to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor labor for me. Yet which shall I choose? I cannot tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, 
so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so, what, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Engage in the same conflict that, I, that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not to only to his own interests, but also the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not, account, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or questioning that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. They all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth. How as a son with a father, he has served me in the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me, and I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. I thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death, But God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but also on me, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy, and honor such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. 
Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is of no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the real circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of, church, of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection of the dead. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we've attained. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I've often told you and now tell you even with tears walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven and from it we await a savior the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat you, Odian, I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord, Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think 
about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. I rejoice in the Lord greatly that, it now, that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Yet it was kind of you to share in my troubles. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are here with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Let's pray. Lord, we are thankful. We are thankful for the work that you have done, you did through Paul in Philippi, and the example of a faithful church that they are to us, partnering in the gospel, fellowshipping in the gospel. Lord, we thank you for the example that Paul is, as he rejoiced and was content in every circumstance, knowing, knowing that you are the one who's working for the good of your people and for the glory of your name. Lord, we thank you for the work that you have done in us. It has been by your grace that you have done this work. It has been for your glory that you have done this work. It has been for our good you have done this work. And Lord, we are thankful. Sovereign grace is not ultimately a church that we planted. It's a church that you planted. For as your son said, I will build my church. Gates of hell will not prevail against her. Lord, we sow we water, but it's you who brings the increase. Lord, we are thankful for the work that you have done in our lives, that you are doing in our lives. And Lord, we, we beg of you to work exceedingly more in us, that we as a church would abound more and more in love with knowledge and all discernment. Lord, that we would approve what is excellent so be pure and blameless on the day of Christ Jesus, being filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we're going to take communion and sing together. Um, we'll sing four songs together, take communion together. Um, as the communion comes...